Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being de delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brothers, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses." Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brothers, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children 
and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. <coughs> Let's pray together. Lord God, as your spirit was poured out upon Peter and his fellow servants on the day of Pentecost, so fill our hearts this evening. Lord, instruct us with heavenly understanding and wisdom and kindness. Show us more uh, these, these wonders of salvation proclaimed. Help us to understand for ourselves how we may profit in these things. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Listen, we're not drunk. You might not always feel the need to begin a sermon like that, but I think you would have to agree that it is a striking introduction to the proclamation of God's word not least because it is the opening words of one of the most significant sermons in the book of the Acts and in fact in the whole of the history of the church. It's significant in part because of the preacher, this man, Simon Peter, the, the spokesman of Christ's disciples, a man who had denied his master three times, who has been ready to turn his back upon his vocation of making known Jesus Christ, who not long before this was saying to his fellow disciples, I'm off fishing, do you want to come with me? But a man who's now been restored and who full of the Holy Spirit is again the apostolic spokesman, declaring divine truth on behalf of the whole gathering of the disciples. It's striking and significant because of the occasion. It is the day of Pentecost, which is now being fulfilled. These men and women have been gathered together and the voices of the saints have been raised in prayers and the hearts of the whole gathering have been joined together, pleading for the promise of the Father, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit has now been poured out in this distinctive way on the day of Pentecost, so much so that we can, with some qualifications, say that this is the first sermon of the Christian era. And it's distinctive because of its result. From 120 gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem, by the end of the day, 3,000 people have been baptised and added to the church of Jesus Christ. In terms of Luke's structure, it's very striking. If you go back to Luke chapter 4, there is another sermon a sermon that is preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a sermon that is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And there's something in the, in the man 
And in Peter, the follower of the man, something in the occasion, something in the contrast between what happens when Christ preaches and what when Peter preaches. That again shows us that in terms of where it comes in the narrative and how it holds together, Luke is conscious of the fact that there are these tracks that are running through the history and there's something in what Peter does that is distinctly then following in the footsteps of the master. One commentator says that this is a sermon of gospel events, gospel witnesses, full of gospel promises and laying down gospel conditions. On every level, it is a thrilling and stimulating sermon. As a preacher, it is fascinating, it is exciting, it is humbling, it is challenging. Because what you have here, without suggesting that every sermon must follow all the contours precisely the way Peter's sermon does, here is an example of apostolic ministry. When, when a man full of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the spread of the gospel speaks, a preacher should be listening and saying, what can I learn from this man and his ministry? But flip that around, because as a Christian congregation and as witnesses to the same Christ, you should be asking, what does new covenant ministry sound like? What should we be listening for? What should we be expecting? What are we entitled to receive when the word of God is being proclaimed? This then is our inheritance This is the kind of teaching and preaching that we should be expecting and pursuing and cultivating and for which we should be praying under the sweet influences of God the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you time preachers when they're reading or preaching. I read through this a couple of times out loud, probably a little bit different if I'm reading it publicly in this setting. But I would suggest to you that we got through the whole of Peter's sermon as recorded in around four minutes. You might say that's no bad thing. But let me tell you also that Peter makes clear that, uh, sorry, Luke makes clear that what he's giving you is a substantial summary. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse or crooked generation. So Luke's given you these accurate contours. Luke's given you this proper sense of what Peter was saying on this occasion. It's accurate with regard to its substance, if not exhaustive with regard to the record. And as a substantial summary, it remains then an enduring example of what new covenant preaching and teaching should involve. I won't tell you how many different ways I was trying to work out I could handle these 30-odd verses of God's word. What I'm going to try and do, and I hope it will be of benefit to us, is to run through the whole probably over the course of at least two, maybe three sermons, and to try and draw out some of the features of this kind of preaching that we should be pursuing and praying for, expecting and desiring. Here then is apostolic preaching. And the first feature to which I would draw your attention is that this preaching is gripping and immediate. It is gripping and 
immediate. Listen, we're not drunk. There's only really one context that that can be in, isn't there? This speaks to the moment with the tongues of flame that have rested on the heads of the disciples, with the sound of the rushing mighty wind that has swept through the room and perhaps has been heard beyond, and now with, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, these men and women who are speaking, maybe privately, maybe publicly, the words of God, the great things that God has done in the various languages of the people, you've had that scorn and that surprise. What could this mean? They're full of new wine. In other words, from the very opening words, this is a sermon of manifest relevance. It belongs in the place where it is being preached. It belongs at the time in which it is being preached. Peter knows where he is. Peter knows when he is. And Peter knows to whom he is speaking. It's mid-morning in Jerusalem. And mid-morning, this will be a shock to some of you, and that's about nine o'clock. There's mid-morning. And, and Peter's basically saying, we can't be drunk because it's only the middle of the morning. But we're in Jerusalem. We're in the place where Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And we're after that crucifixion. This is after that event and I'm speaking to you who know these things because not only did you observe them, you were involved in them. Many of you are the people who were baying for the blood of this Jesus. When Pontius Pilate said, who will you have me release to you, Jesus or Barabbas, you cried out, give us Barabbas, crucify this Jesus. It is from real people and it is two real people there's an earthiness there's an immediacy about this it's about real people it's two real people and it's four real people there's nothing uh, airy about this nothing indistinct nothing theoretical it's a sermon that comes from us to you Peter uses that kind of direct language. And the people that he talks about and to whom he refers are manifestly real people. Us, you, Joel, David, and Jesus of Nazareth. Real people are engaged at every point, both in terms of the preaching and the hearing and the range of reference. And Peter deals with the most important matters. Salvation from sin by faith in a crucified Christ. It's there in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And in consequence of that recognition, verse 38, repent. And let every one of you be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or pardon, the putting away of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It's gripping. It's immediate. It's real. It's a here and now sermon. We're in the right place and the right time. 
And this sermon plugs into the real world and the pressing needs of the men and women to whom it is preached. On one level, it's a living man to living men. It's not an exercise in history. It's not a sermon that could have been preached in any time or any place to any people. It's a sermon that preaches in Jerusalem under these circumstances. But it's also, you might say, to use the language of Richard Baxter, the sermon of a dying man to dying men. It's preached very much with a present sense of eternity and the difference between life and death, a dividing line that is formed by the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth, who is God's appointed Lord and Christ. A living man to living men, a dying man to dying men, about the man who lived and died and rose again and lives evermore. And nothing could be more gripping and immediate than that. Now, brothers and sisters, I have to ask it as a preacher, we have to ask it as a church. Is our testimony to the great things of God as real and as relevant as Peter's was? Do we speak? Do we preach? Do we testify in a real world in the here and now? I'm not asking does everybody realise how important are the things that we say. It's evident even here that there was a distinction. But in terms of our approach, in terms of our connection, are we preaching what could be airy theories about religious things? Or are we grounded in the present world and speaking as living men to living men, as dying men to dying men, about the man who lived and died and rose again and lives evermore. In Genesis chapter 19, Lot in Sodom gets an opportunity to go and tell his family about the fact that God is about to bring a judgment on the city. And to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Now that may speak in some measure to the outlook and the attitude of his sons-in-law. But I think it also says something about the attitude and the outlook of Lot. Even the fact that he'd lived in Sodom the way that he had been. When it came time for Lot to speak of an impending judgment, he was a joke to the people who heard him. Do we speak with the kind of gripping immediacy that we must acknowledge to some extent comes only with the, the grant of something of spiritual power? Are you listening like a real person? Because this is no more theory on that side of this pulpit than it is on this. You stand before God this evening. This is not a theory to you any more than it can be to me. It comes from a real man. It comes to real men and women. It comes about the realities with which we have to deal. 
it is me to you about the man Jesus Christ. It's here and it's now. This is not a lecture. These are not theories. This is a sermon about true things. Apostolic preaching is gripping and immediate. Apostolic preaching is also scriptural and reasonable. (coughs) One of the ways that we could divide up this sermon is to take it in the successive sections that it contains. So Peter begins with explanation. We're not drunk. This is what Joel was saying. Then it moves on to exposition. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, signs and wonders. Listen to what David said about him. Listen to what David said about him in another place. Then it moves on to application. Let all the house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Then there's persuasion. Repent as they cry out. What shall we do? Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, you could say, yes, you could divide it like that. And you could look through the sermon as a whole. But you can hear that it's reasonable, can't you? It starts with what they're looking at with what they're concerned about, with what's filling their eyes and their ears. And having both gripped and responded to their attention, Peter moves on and he says, now let me tell you what lies behind that. And then he brings that to bear upon their souls. This Jesus of whom I speak, this is God's Lord and Christ. And as the people under the influence of the word of God begin to respond, Peter is then pleading with them. It's straightforward in that sense. But there's something else to to learn here, that it is not built on his experience or on their experience. The preaching of the apostles is grounded on the word of God. Now, Peter could have said, listen, we've got the Holy Spirit and these signs and wonders. This is what you should be paying attention to. But he does not do so. He takes them back to the word of God. He doesn't build something on their experience, on their frames and feelings. It is the scripture that is needed to interpret, to explain and to confirm what is taking place. Now, Peter will do almost exactly the same kind of thing when he writes his second letter In chapter 1 and verse 19. Listen to what he says from verse 16. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter doesn't say you should have seen what we saw. Peter doesn't say, you should have heard what we've heard. 
Peter says you need to listen to what God has said. The scriptures are necessary. And Peter turns to three. One commentator's interesting. He almost imagines the, this apostolic college of men standing there. And he says he likes to think of them helping Peter out with his quotations. I'm not quite sure where he gets that from in the text. But this is the, this is the truth of God. These men are resting on the word of God. And Peter begins with Joel and chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And it's there in <coughs> Peter's version of the Greek Testament. The spirit has been poured out and the signs and the wonders that you are seeing now and the signs and the wonders and the miracles of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the grant of the Holy Spirit. That's what you're seeing. Peter doesn't defend the experience apart from the word of God. And it's the first of these three texts in which he's got this very well-grounded explanation. And, And technically, it's a this is that. That's his teaching style. You see this? It's that. What you're seeing and hearing now, this is what the word of God has already identified. His next text, if you will. Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. I foresaw the Lord always before my hand, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. We've already seen Peter doing something of this when he was handling the Psalms with regard to the experience of Christ at the hands of Judas and the way that it needed to be responded to. He's reading the Old Testament and he's telling us this is what spoke of Jesus of Nazareth. So when you read the 16th Psalm, what you're reading about as David writes and speaks is the Lord Christ giving up his spirit in confident hope and the reality of the resurrection. This risen Jesus, this is that. This is what David was talking about in Psalm 16. This is the fulfillment of God's word. And then his third text, Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What was David speaking about? Of whom was he talking? Not himself, because we've got David's tomb with us. We know that when the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, that in the same way as David died and stayed dead, but the man of whom David spoke has risen again, so Psalm 110 speaks of him who has ascended into heaven and poured out this gift from the right hand of God. This, this is that. These are the things. Look at verse 22 and 23. It's immediate. The things which God has done through Jesus Christ, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and knowledge of God, for knowledge of God you've taken by lawless hands of crucified and put to death. You know, says Peter, You can hear the promise of the Spirit. God has poured out, verse 33, this which you now see and hear. You see, it's still gripping and immediate, isn't it? 
But it's also scriptural and reasonable. You can see this. You can hear this. These realities are not hidden from you. And this is that. It's what God says and it's what God means. Those words refer to this reality. And here again, my friends, you've got what we've called the apostolic hermeneutic. That is the way that the apostles interpret the word of God following the example and the instruction of their God and saviour, Jesus Christ. So in Luke chapter 24, and I hope this is now dinning into your ears, verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's Peter doing on the day of Pentecost? He is expounding to these people, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, the things in the scriptures concerning Jesus. You know Joel? He spoke of him. You know David. He spoke of him. This that you now see and hear. This is that. God has spoken. And it is upon that. Which I expect you to build your response. My brothers, my sisters. Do we rely on the word of God in our preaching? It's not wrong to speak out of experience. Peter had experienced these things. He's a man of conviction with regard to this. He's fully persuaded. It's a bit like the Apostle Paul talking to the Thessalonians. That the, the preaching of the gospel was not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with much assurance, we were persuaded and you became persuaded as the Holy Spirit was at work in our midst in the preaching. So we're not saying that we, we just do this in a flat and dull fashion. But it does mean that the word of God is where we rest our confidence. It does mean that the truth of the scriptures is how we build our case. Are my sermons loaded with scripture? When you're talking to your friends, is your speech full of the word of God? Do you believe that this gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes? And therefore you will make sure that people hear the word of the living God and that you're calling them to put their faith in him and what he has said. So that you can point to what's taking place in the human heart, in the world at large, in the church of Jesus Christ, in their own experience. You say this, this is that. Amen. It's the word of God that explains you and this and the life that we live and the world in which we're found. Here's Mr. Spurgeon. He's working through this for some younger pastors who'd asked for a study guide on Spurgeon's final manifesto. It's called The Greatest Fight in the World, one of the last addresses he gave at his minister's college. This is what he says. We should resolve that we will quote more of Holy Scripture. Sermons should be full of Bible, sweetened, strengthened, sanctified with Bible essence. You put vanilla essence in something, everything gets vanilla -y. The Bible essence in a sermon, everything gets bible -y. 
The kind of sermons that people need to hear are outgrowths of scripture. If they do not love to hear them, there is all the more reason why they should be preached to them. The gospel has the singular faculty of creating a taste for itself. Bible hearers, when they hear indeed, come to be Bible lovers. Now, the mere stringing of texts together is a poor way of making sermons, though some have tried it, and I doubt not God has blessed them since they did their best. It's far better to string texts together than to pour out one's own poor thoughts in a washy flood. There will at least be something to be thought of and remembered if the holy word be quoted, and in the other case there may be nothing whatever. Texts of scripture need not, however, be merely strung together. They may be fitly brought in to give edge and point to a discourse. They will be the force of the sermon. Our own words are mere paper pellets compared with the rifle shot of the word. The scripture is the conclusion of the whole matter. There's no arguing after we find that it is written. To a large extent in the hearts and consciences of our hearers, debate is over when the Lord has spoken. Thus says the Lord is the end of discussion to Christian minds. And even the ungodly cannot resist scripture without resisting the spirit who wrote it. That we may speak convincingly, we will speak scripturally. Now, I think Spurgeon would have said, and this is that. What I'm calling you to do is to preach like Peter. To ground what you say, and we should point out, not just in terms of the general quotations, but also in terms of the specific points and the echoes. The substance of this sermon is scriptural in its flavour as well as in its distinctive words. God has spoken. And if men are to hear what God says, then our sermons, our testimony... Our declaration needs to be scriptural and reasonable. By scriptural, saturated with the word of God. By reasonable, I'm referring to the way that Peter puts these things together. It's not just a random bombardment. It is targeted shot that lands in the right places and pulls you forward step by step. Then the third feature of apostolic preaching... And this will be the last one this evening. Doctrinal and instructive. Doctrinal and instructive. Now bear with me a moment because what I'm about to say may mean almost nothing to most of you. There's your warning. <laughs> Having said about we need to be gripping and immediate and scriptural and reasonable. Suppose I were to speak to somebody who wishes to be a preacher. And I would say to them, now, brother, when you stand up in a few weeks' time, I want you to produce for me a systematic and biblical theological discourse that is distinctively Trinitarian in its tone, which includes theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, prolegomena, anthropology, soteriology, sacramentology, eschatology, and ecclesiology. And I'll give you a few minutes in which to do it. Some of you might be saying, I, you know, it's like the old Maureen Lippmann, BT, you've got an ology? What are you, a sign? You know, where do you even start with all those ologies? Now, 
On one level, that's utterly ridiculous, and you might say borders on the impossible. Except that Peter's four-minute summary here is a weaving together of biblical theology with systematic theology, distinctly Trinitarian, that combines declarations and explorations of theology proper, the study of God himself, Christology, the person and work of Jesus Christ, pneumatology, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, prolegomena, the nature of divine revelation, anthropology, what human beings are like, soteriology, how God saves sinners, sacramentology, at least with regard to baptism, eschatology, what happens in the last days, and ecclesiology, what is the church of Jesus Christ? It's all big words, but in Peter's sermon, isn't it natural? Isn't it? No, none of you listen to me, I hope, read through. You might not have said, I get all of that all at once, but no one says, oh, don't, don't dazzle me with science. Don't give me the heavy stuff. Don't bamboozle me with your deep thoughts and your big words. It comes naturally. It comes accessibly, but it comes forcefully, and it comes substantially. See, Peter's not delivering a lecture. You could lecture about all of those things, but a sermon is not a lecture. This is a living man to living men. This is a dying man to dying men about the man who lived and died and rose and lives evermore, but it is full of truth. Peter, my friends, is not some numpty fisherman who doesn't know one end of a theological stick from the other. Peter is a true theologian. He is soaked in the word of God. And in this sermon, he shows the fruit of Christ's instruction and the Spirit's illumination. And this is preaching. Accessible, yes. Plain and straightforward, yes. Forceful and substantial, yes, but loaded with true things. And it's not even these trying to smuggle them in, but you learn without even realizing that you're learning. Let me give you some examples. Peter teaching us about God. Verse 17 It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Where does the Holy Spirit come from? It is God the Father who gives him. Verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. These things belong to God. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst. It is this God who works by his power. Verse 23, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Who is it who governs? in this world overruling even the worst of things to our minds to the greatest of goods in his plan verse 24 God raised Jesus up by whose power was Christ raised from the dead Verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up. Verse 33, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Where is God? He's high and lifted up. It is from him that the Spirit proceeds together with the Son. 
Verse 39, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call, whose will and purpose lies behind salvation. It is God the Father. Then what of Christ? It shall come to pass in the last days, verse 17 says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Who pours out the Holy Spirit? It's the risen Christ. What do you learn about Christ? That Christ also is God. On my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Verses 22 to 24. He's Jesus of Nazareth, a man. He who is God is also man. And he's attested by God to you by miracles, signs and wonders. Verse 23, you took him by lawless hands. You have crucified him and put him to death. That is what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 24, did he stay dead? No, God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, God would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Now you've got a reigning king of David's line. Verse 31, David foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that the man who died has risen again. His soul is not in Hades, his flesh did not see corruption. Who raised up Jesus? It was God himself. Where is he now? He's exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. David did not ascend into the heavens, but David spoke of his Lord who ascended into the heavens. Who is this Jesus, the man whom you crucified? God has made both Lord and Christ. So far you've had theology proper, you've had Christology, pneumatology. What does Peter tell us about the Holy Spirit? I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Verse 18, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy that this is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his people. Verse 33, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit that he is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is given to all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and who are born again of his mighty power. Prolegomena. What does this tell us about Revelation? Verse 17, it shall come to pass, verse 16 rather, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Who spoke in Joel chapter 2? There are two right answers. Joel spoke and God spoke. That tells us something about revelation. Peter doesn't give you a lecture on the nature of scripture, but you know that when the prophet speaks, God speaks. And when God speaks, it comes through the prophet. Then verse 22 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. That God has testified to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth by the miracles, signs and wonders which he did. Verses 29 and 31, same sort of point. Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. There Therefore, being a prophet and knowing what God had sworn, he spoke this. Now, we sometimes say the prophets did not always understand everything that they spoke. And we're right. And yet David, being a prophet and knowing that God had already sworn certain things, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. David, in Psalm 16, was speaking about the risen Jesus. That tells us something about Revelation. Verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. We ourselves have a duty, says Peter, speaking on behalf of the apostles. We are the testifiers. We are the eyewitnesses of his majesty. These are the things that have been confirmed before us. What John says, we've seen, we've heard, we've touched, we've tasted. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You can know this because you can join up the dots. Anthropology. What does Peter know and teach about man? Verse 23. You took him by lawless hands. He's telling you something about the nature of sinful man. We have lawless hands. It wasn't just the Jews in Jerusalem who had lawless hands. That's the nature of the hands of fallen mankind. Verse 29. Men and brothers, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What does that tell you about people? That they die. <laughs> that there's an end to mortal life on this earth. Verse 40. Be saved from this perverse generation. What is the world like? What was it like in those days? What is it like in these days? We live in a crooked and perverse generation. Mankind is fallen. Soteriology. What does Peter say about salvation? It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that a sweet and straightforward summary? And that's soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. Verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up of whom we are all witnesses. He's the saviour. Therefore, verse 36, that all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then the pleading, repent, turn from your sins. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Those same two verses, sacramentology. What is baptism? Baptism identifies with the Christ who died and rose again. And in being baptised, there is a testimony of the forgiveness of our sins. It is an obedience to this command that we enter into that blessing. Who should be baptised? Those who gladly received the word of God. The last days. Eschatology. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. 
When are the last days? They started with the coming and the dying and the rising and the ascending of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20 and 21. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's distinctive about the last days? They're the days of the gospel going forth and they're the days of the chosen coming in. What about the church? Ecclesiology. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. That all of God's people will be recipients of the spirit of Christ. Verse 21. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 39. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Are you a Jew? If God calls you, you come. Are you a Gentile? If God calls you, you come. And when God calls, you come and you're saved. What does that look like? You're delivered from this perverse generation. You gladly receive his word you are baptised and you are numbered with the other followers of Jesus Christ. Now, why have I spent so much time proving that to you? It's because real preaching is doctrinal. Real preaching is instructive. You may not always realise that you are being taught, but the word of God preached fills you with truth. Peter doesn't say, let's talk about this element. Let me tell you about God. Now let me tell you about Christ. Now let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. But you see that Peter understands all these truths. And accessibly and warmly and forcefully, he communicates that word to us. Peter's got the big picture Peter understands how God has revealed himself over time. Peter, Peter's got that biblical theological understanding. Peter's got a systematic theological... He can tell you this is what God is like. This is what Jesus is like. This is what the Spirit is like. And all of that hangs behind this sermon, which is still gripping and immediate, still scriptural and reasonable. And almost without us realising, Peter is filling our hearts with truth about so much that God has made known. Preachers need to know this stuff. And Peter's preachers, Peter's as well, but preachers, need to show this theological substance. And when I say show, and when I say no, I mean on the one hand we cannot ignore it, and we cannot neglect it because the preaching needs to be substantial in its truth. But when I say show it, I don't mean parade it or perform it because you'd almost not realise how much Peter knows as he preaches that sermon, would you? But when I can pick it out, following through those tracks, say, wow, there's a lot there to learn. 
and yet I'm learning it almost without recognising it. New Testament preaching is not designed to entertain the goats. It's not there to amuse unbelievers. It's not there to stretch the giraffes. Because if you use the kind of language that I use, you might be like, I, I, that would scare some of you, wouldn't it? I mean, actually, if someone told me to preach a sermon like that, I'd probably be scared as well. But, but actually, when the word of God is preached, it is these truths that come to light. The aim is not to turn us all into people who can reach the very heights of theological, technical, academic excellence. The word of God is to call and to feed the sheep. And you need truth. You need doctrine. You need instruction it's not enough for a man to stand up and spout his experience when a sermon is scriptural and reasonable it is also doctrinal and instructive you can have a lofty scholar who's got no idea how to preach to real people the so-called ivory tower theologian I think Peter's got more theology in his noggin than a lot of so-called theologians. But because he's a man among men who knows God and God's truth, he is speaking on our level for the saving and the sustaining of our souls. I closed this evening with this. My friends, do you want milky or meaty sermons? I will very rarely use this kind of language but you better be expecting and demanding sermons that are doctrinal and instructive we want to know God we want to know his son we want to understand his spirit's work we want to understand how and why and where and when God has spoken we want to know what it means to be a man made in God's image, to understand not only our fallenness, but also God's work of salvation. We want to understand what it means to live in these days between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We want to understand what it means to belong in the church of Jesus Christ. And we want that doctrine, that teaching, that truth to be both central and incidental. So that, I remember a few years ago, there was a, uh, someone who was attending this congregation and they said, some, I want to go to a certain country and I want to do a Bible degree. Okay, why do you want to do a Bible degree? Because I want to learn what God's word says so that I can be more useful. Now, without betraying either the country or the place or the nature of the course, I think I could honestly say to him, Young man, if you want to know what God says, if you want Bible ground into you, held before you, declared to you, stick it out in a faithful gospel church under faithful gospel ministry. Because any man worth his salt will preach these things, will teach these things, will invest in you, will provide you with all the books and the reading that you might want. You don't need, the vast majority of us need not go 
to a Bible school to learn Bible. Because apostolic preaching is doctrinal and instructive. And you may not always have it all laid out in the same format that you would get it in an academic course. But when God's truth is preached in something of the spirit of the apostles, you will learn the great works of God. And it should be deep. And it should be clear. And it should be sweet. Coming from the man who stands here to you in the here and now that we may know this Christ. Learn him, love him and follow him to the end. Amen. Amen.